It's great to see you guys. It's good to get out of the house, isn't it? True story, I, I get cabin fever after like 10 minutes, so it doesn't matter whether it's a snowstorm. I start pacing in my home. Um, what I've realized is I liked snowstorms better when I was 16 than I do now. Because um, when I was 16 or less or a couple years more, the opportunity for a snow day was always present. Now snowstorms, unless I'm in Colorado skiing, they've kind of lost a little bit of its luster uh, for the reason which I'm about to describe. There's kind of a process when snowpocalypse happens. Um, the first piece of the process is the anticipation of it coming, right? And uh, my wife, uh, for one, maybe you're like that, I mean, watches the weather nonstop for days at a time, you know? And I get constant text updates. And Mark, now they're calling for six inches. And Mark, now they're calling for 12 inches. And Mark, now it's going to be three foot of snow. We're never going to leave the house until June. I mean, it's like, you know, every, every opportunity she has to update me. So uh, the first piece of the, the snowstorm is the anticipation. Then it starts to snow. And then it moves into the fun piece of the storm, and that's the beauty piece, right? Do you guys remember being in grade school when you, like, cut out the snowflakes, uh, like the paper things? And it, the, the whole point of the exercise was, like, no two snowflakes are the same. Have you ever found yourself wondering that when you're looking at them? You're like, they sure look the same. You know what I mean? Like, like look at them, right? Like they, but, but it's beautiful, isn't it? Like, whether they're different or not, I don't really care. In that moment when everything's coming down, um, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool. It's pretty surreal. Um, then it moves into the next phase, the phase which I call, if, unless I'm profiting from shoveling snow, I really don't like snow, okay? Uh, how many of you guys had to shovel your own snow, right? Okay, so for those of you guys that, you, re- you really wish it wouldn't have snowed, right? You get out there, you're like, is there human bodies in this? Like, why is this so heavy, right? Like, this snow in particular, I, I thought several times I was scooping up, like, small animals or something. Um, and I, I know many of you guys profited from shoveling, well done, that's very good entrepreneurship on your part. Uh, so that's kind of a fun phase. But the next phase is fear. Um, and fear is uh, specifically as it pertains to driving. Okay, True story. Saw an 85-year-old woman on the interstate going 20, okay, and like just rocking it. Like 10 and 2, you know. And I, I like drove by her. I'm like, I'm not so sure she should be driving. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I you know, and, and my heart goes out for her. I'm just like, I, you know, that's probably not the, and then, just to my left, true story, just to my left, like a 16-year-old dude who just got his license yesterday, comes rolling down in like a 1996 Ford Explorer, you know, that like the 4x4 the four four doesn't even work, and he's going like 85, you know, just confident as can be. How many of you guys have been in a snowstorm in Colorado, right? You know the feeling. It's very easy to tell the difference between a Midwesterner or someone who's not from Colorado and people who are, Right? Because the people who aren't from Colorado are driving on the shoulder, you know what I mean? There's like, like hitting the little rivets, you know what I mean, going like 15. That was kind of just a fun motion to make right there. It's kind of, kind of bouncing, you know. And, and then you got the Colorado people who are just, just railing it, right? So fear on the roadways, uh, I think we, we should actually feel more often, especially with many of you guys driving. The reality is many of you probably shouldn't be driving, okay? In a moment of confessional, could you just confess if that's you? Like who here should not be driving, should not have a driver's license, Okay, one, there, two, right. You drove here, you got in an accident and got a ticket two different times, you know. Um, now, uh, the, 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 fifth fla- the fifth phase of the snowstorm is the, the phase we're in now, the sloppy phase, right. I hate the sloppy phase. We're like, you know, you get a, get a brand new pair of Pumas for Christmas. Praise God for Puma. You got a brand new pair of Pumas for Christmas. And you just got to walk around in the snowy slop, you know. Like, no one, no one enjoys that, um, 
So how many of you guys, though, in all honesty, you really enjoyed this snowstorm? Like, it was just awesome for you guys, okay? Awesome. So about six of us, that's good. Um, now, the, the fear component is interesting, and we're really going to be unpacking fear tonight in general. And he, here's what I believe about fear, sharing a bit of my heart um, as we're getting going, is I believe fear, um, not of um, things that, you know, kind of make us afraid, like movies, or, but a fear of man, a fear of the world, a fear of things, a fear of yourself. Um, typically, that creates two responses that are opposite of each other, but still the same. Uh, the first response is a hesitant response. So when you're fearful, dominated by a fear of man, things, yourself, the world, one of your responses is, is hesitant. You pause. You're uh, not ready to step out. You're not willing to step out. You're afraid of what would happen if you did step out. So you get a little bit safe, if, uh, if that's the right word. And then the other uh, response to fear is you get compulsive. So out of your fear, sometimes an illogical thinking, then you make moves, decisions, you lead your life in a way that's very, very compulsive. So if you just started thinking about how much of your life is dominated by fear and then thought about the decisions that you make while you're fearful of people, of being accepted, of this group, of this boss, of whatever it may be, you'll see that your decisions are either hesitant or compulsive. Now, tonight I'm serious. I know I say it a lot, but there's so much on my heart, and I am absolutely loving Exodus so far. And if, in case you're, you missed last week on the January 1st, we just started the book of Exodus, okay? It's going to take us a long time. By our count, we'll be done by about 2020. Um, so it'll take us a little bit. But it's a beautiful book of uh, awesome story of redemption and so many other themes. Last week, just to catch you up, here's what we saw. Uh, we saw that, that God, in His sovereignty... Uh, was able to send the Israelite nation to Egypt by using a man named Joseph. Okay? Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, left for dead, gets picked up, winds up in power in Egypt, and then at the end of Genesis, uh, has the opportunity to give forgiveness to his brothers. And then because of that, connection and relationship, him, Joseph, and his brothers, and then all the siblings and all the people that would come after them end up in Egypt. Okay? So that's where we're at. we got a whole bunch of Israelites in Egypt. If you missed last week, there, you're caught up. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, okay? We're going to look at the rest of the chapter, uh, chapter 1 tonight. Really excited about tonight. Uh, fear, the concept of fear will certainly drive uh, much of our discussion. I'm just glad you guys are here, seriously. I've been anxious uh, to be with you and uh, certainly anxious to share tonight. So when you guys are there, say I'm there. Exodus chapter 1 should be uh, in my Bible. It's page 45. So around there in yours. Here we go. Verse uh, 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now um, kings and Egypt typically go synonymous with uh, the term which many of you guys are familiar with, Pharaoh. Okay. Now Pharaoh by term literally means uh, it's kind of like a house palace. So the very initial using of the, the term Pharaoh was used to talk about the house of the king. Now this leader, we're not so sure if it's a Pharaoh, at least the one he's talking about here, or a leader who's a part of the, the Sychus uh, um, dynasty. Now uh, that's S-Y-K-S-O-S, okay? They ruled from about the, uh, the 13th dynasty to the 17th dynasty in the Egyptian uh, realm of leadership. 
They were hated by the Egyptians. They came in, took Egypt by force, eventually were expelled. Okay? So we're not sure if that's the leader here or if it is, in fact, um, the next pharaoh. But regardless, verse 8 says, there arose a new king, and that king did not know Joseph. Now, significant. We can assume by Moses' language, who writes this book, that the king must, in his not knowing of Joseph, wasn't then going to give the same grace that was given to all the generations before in terms of the Israelites in Egypt. Make sense? Joseph gets to Egypt, and then because of Joseph and his legacy and who he is as a man, then all the Israelites, because they're associated with Joseph, were extended grace in Egypt. But this king doesn't know Joseph. He's not interested in extending mercy and grace because of Joseph. Now there's going to be new decisions made. So verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 9 of uh, Exodus chapter 1, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So all the other generations, though the Israelites were multiplying, we saw at the end of uh, verse 7, they were making straight babies, right? I mean, babies were coming out. A lot of babies being made in the Israelites, all right? This uh, king, though, doesn't take too kindly to that. We see here the beginnings in his heart of fear. Now, how many of you guys have ever been the new kid in town? Any of you guys? You had to move? Okay. I moved uh, at a very, many of you guys, I moved at a very difficult time to move. I moved at the height of uh, armpit hair, uh, as, or like some of you guys like to call puberty, okay? Now, um, that may not be the same for everyone, but for me, 6th to 7th grade, my voice started crackling, um, I was growing, okay, armpit hair, I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was puberty. Guys, you guys remember that? Remember the first time in the mirror, you're like, sweet mother, you know? <laughs> you were like combing it, you know what I mean? You're like, right on, but I can braid that, you know? So I, we just moved to, um, just moved to Vandalia, Illinois, and I, I decided I was going to make a name for myself. You know, I'm like, new kid in town, there's a lot of anxiety that goes when you move, okay? New friends, new people, how are they going to respond? So I decided in my intelligence that uh, to make a name for myself, I was going to be the new kid in town that left his tag on his Little League hat, okay? True story, horrible decision. Um, do you guys understand what I'm saying? So when you buy a hat, there's a tag on it, okay? Well, this was in the days of uh, crisscross. Any of you guys know the band? Crisscross will make a jump jump, okay? My generation of music. How many of you guys have heard of crisscross? Okay, a few of you. Dear Lord, I'm getting old. Um, so anyway, the big thing was wearing tags on your hats, and, you know, now it's kind of straight, Bill. Well, back in, So that's what I was going to do. So I um, left my tag on my hat. Like, I'm the new kid in town who is giving everyone this pompous image because I'm playing shortstop with a tag, like, ruffling in the wind, you know? And so I, I, was, I was initially kind of seen as pompous, almost a little bit hated in that time. And then the last game of the year in the championship, I hit a grand slam to win at the end. And, uh, I, you know, kind of the – that was pretty awesome, honestly, you know? It's going to – and then uh, just in all humility now, then I went to high school. That was literally, that Little League home run was the last hit I ever had. I batted like, like literally like a buck in high school baseball. Started for three years. Like could not hit. Anyway, the new kid in town, there's a lot of perceptions that, that get bestowed on them. That's kind of like this, 
this image that Pharaoh has or this leader has of the people. It's like, all right, I know, I know, like, I know you think you're cool or I know you guys are here, but I don't, like, I'm not, I'm not jiving with why you're here or even the reason that you're here. I think you need to go. And so that's his heart. He's like, I, I need to get rid of these people. They become mighty. I'm fearing, says the leader, that they're too mighty for us at the end of verse 9. Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And I, I've kind of wondered, like, who is he talking to here? It kind of feels like mirror, mirror on the wall. Like, he's just, like, you know, bellowing out commands to himself. But he says in his first maneuvering, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. This is a man that at the core of him is dominated by fear. He fears that he's going to lose control, that he's going to lose power, that he's going to lose, listen, the thing that in this moment is making him feel worthwhile. Uh, Again, there's rightful fears. Some of you have been abused. Some of you have had horrible, devastating things done to you. I'm not talking about fearing those things. Those are rightful fears, okay? I've been with some women who uh, feared, were terrified of going back in their home. That's a different kind of fear. The fear that I'm talking about now is the fear of losing the grip of control. It's fearing man and their opinion and their approval so much that it dominates you. You can't stop thinking about what people are thinking about you. You can't, like the thoughts, they just, you wake up in the middle of the night dominated by fear. This is the heart of this leader. He's worried. I have, like, seemingly world control, but these people, they're growing fast. I need to do something. I need to maneuver. I need to act. Again, hesitant or compulsive. Okay. Now, if you were to identify some of those things right now, some of those fears, whether it's a person, it's a group of people, it's a boss, it's a coworker, like someone that you're really, really, really striving in an unhealthy way to gain their worthwhileness, right, in your heart. If you could just identify those in your mind, I think it will help us guide the rest of the conversation. So he says in his maneuvering, in his uh, first maneuver in verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them, To afflict them with heavy, what's the word say? With heavy burdens. With heavy burdens. Now, super, super cool thing. In the Hebrew, this word burdens, it shows up in a few different places. But one of the places that it shows up is in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, Isaiah 53 is a whole chapter about the Messiah. So this word burdens comes up. Check this out. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs... And, and that, here's the word right here, carried our sorrows. Isn't it crazy that God in his sovereignty is allowing in this moment Pharaoh to think that he has control by burdening the Israelite nation, by burdening, as it were, God's people. And yet the whole time, Isaiah 53 says, yeah, but the Messiah is coming who will carry those burdens who will take those burdens. In other words, any burden that's ever placed on the shoulders of man, and that man is a follower of Christ, those burdens are already being carried. 
you take all of your past, everything that's ever been done to you and everything you've ever done. Just the thought of it is pretty burdening, isn't it? If you could just take the things that people have done to you, I mean, the list of the burdens would fill journal page after journal page. And isn't it crazy to know that I know the Lord says, come to me and I'll give you rest, but isn't it crazy to know that in him, those burdens are already being carried. They were carried in the image of the cross. They're being carried in the image of Jesus as now our high priest and intercessor to God. The whole image of these burdens hanging on the shoulders of the Israelites, my friends, are being carried on the shoulders of a Messiah. And listen, it's one thing to say that and kind of think, oh, that's, that's nice. That's really cool, Jesus. Thanks so much for doing that. But if you get the, the true significance of that, the, if you understand the power of that, that means our life then and its significance is so much more fun to live and so much lighter to live. So he says in his first maneuver, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built, did the Israelites, Pharaoh's store cities in Pithom and Ramses. Some debate over where these cities are currently, but their task is this. Um, literally build storehouses that end up becoming cities that in them will hold food and militant weaponry, which is a really cool phrase to say, isn't it? Militant weaponry. Come on now, it sounds hardcore. Guys, on your first date, uh, here's a tip for you guys, if you guys are taking notes. On your first date, just like, you know, at some point just say, yeah, and up back at my house, uh, I have a shed that's all for militant weaponry. Um, it's pretty cool. I fashion it myself. Um, so I hope that's encouraging to you guys. Again, if you're dating someone and they're here, that may not work because obviously they're, but you guys get it. Now, look at this, verse 12, and I love this. Please see this. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Here's the thing I love about God is uh, I know many of us in our, in our language will say that God defies the odds. He defies them. I believe God defines the odds. Like everyone would say, including Pharaoh, the leader here, would say, listen, if I put burdens on these people, if I make, you know, make them work real hard, they're going to be tired. They're not going to want to procreate, you know. Daddy's going to get home and daddy's going to be sleepy, right? So there's no procreation. I don't think I need to draw you an etch sketch right? You guys, you guys get it, okay? So by all odds, it would be like, I, like of, of course, like if you do that, then eventually the race will fall apart. But instead, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Listen, it's so incredibly easy to fall in temptation of seeing the temporal things and then allowing the temporal things to control your vantage point of what's really going on, what's really happening. But I love the constant vantage point of God is what you think is really happening or who you think is in control or who you think is winning, guess what? They oppressed my people thinking they could get my people down and what happened? They still multiplied, right? Daddy still went home and they worked it out, right? And Israelites be making babies, okay? So if you're taking notes, write that down. Israelites be making babies. All right, here we go. Mom, what? Son, what'd you learn at church tonight? Here we go. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in what? In what? Dread of the people of Israel. Now, it's not just Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt that is dominated by fear. Now, it's all the people. Living in fear 
is so tremendously tiring. If you feel like you constantly have to gain the approval in your fear of man from everyone around you, is there anything more wearisome? Because you're constantly looking over your shoulder, you're constantly trying to remember the exaggeration that you told this person to make sure it's accurate when you tell this person in the case that they talk. You guys know what I'm talking about. The approval of man is so incredibly tiring. And now fear of losing their country, fear of losing themselves, now it's not just the leader of Egypt that's in duress, now it's the entire nation. They're filled with dread, they said. So, verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. Now just to give us some perspective tonight. How many of you guys work at a place where, uh, like, you pretty much work at a computer all day? Okay, you go, you work in an office cubicle, okay, right, you get carpal tunnel, all right. And the first service, obviously, a few more folks. A lot of our, a lot of our folks work, you know, behind a computer, and it's all good, um, certainly not to be negated. How many of you guys work more like hard manual labor, okay? Yeah, you go out, all right, good. So about seven of us, we're really hardworking blue-collar church. Um, the rest of you guys don't work apparently, right? I don't know what I do, you know what I'm saying? Um, now, uh, I can honestly say the uh, Ecuador trips for me are, um, are the one time a year that I work harder than any other time. I mean, it is straight hard work. And, uh, and I love it. It's amazing. But it's really, really hard. And the reason it's hard is, like, for instance, going out and shoveling, you know, with the dead animals or whatever's underneath there. Like, it's hard work, but then I go in, and there, then there's, like, hot chocolate, and I take a nice shower with a towel, you know? Well, in Ecuador, you're, like, really working hard, and then you're bathing in an Amazon tributary, you know, with, like, shampoo that's sitting on a rock. And the leader of the, the when I was just there this spring, the leader of the village just said, oh, yeah, I saw a 20, uh, 20-foot python right, right there in the river, you know? And so you're, like, constantly looking around for snakes and other shrapnel, you know? I threw that in there. It didn't fit. It just sounded good right there. Um, you know, so like, like it's one thing to work hard and then it's another thing to work hard in a situation where like when you're walking back from taking a bath, you're sweating again, okay? I say all that to make sure that each of us, we can have in our mind at least a time, a time when you worked hard, okay? And maybe it's been a while, right? Take that and times it by whatever. That's the oppression that these people are undergoing, okay? Slavery. This is maneuver number two. Like, make them bitter. Work them so hard, they do not want to live anymore. If we don't get this picture, we're going to miss Exodus. If we just think, like, this is like the slaves, you know, are, are you know, singing fun songs, and, you know, they're kind of, like, this is hard, devastating stuff. Um, the images that come in my mind, certainly are that of World War II, are that of a Holocaust, are that um, of a man, Hitler, who had the same desire to wipe out a nation. He saw them as inferior. He saw them as insignificant. And interestingly enough, it just happens to be the same group of people. Now, all of us, when we see a Holocaust movie, um, at least for me, it's like instant cry. Well, you can see a, a Google image, and it's for me, it's like instant, just 
gut-wrenching, horrible feeling. I hate it. I can't make that happen here in the Exodus story, but I'm just telling you, there's not much different. Okay? There wasn't mass executions to the extent, certainly, but this is slavery. This is diminishing a group of people. This is saying you're not worth living, so go ahead and work, and our hope is that you'll die working. Okay? And so some people ha- have said or, or believe like, so, like, why would God allow this to happen? Well, this is the whole setup of the story. Is all of this is happening, and then eventually Moses says, God, are you hearing the cries of your people? They are hurting. And then God send, uh, sends the plan of redemption. So, they're working hard, and at the end of verse 14, um, they're working in the heart and the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And now our story gets really interesting. Then the king, verse 15 of Egypt, said to the Hebrew midwives, pause. Anyone here know what a midwife is? I, have to t- I had to look this up because I just wanted to make sure. Like if you're going to define midwife, you better know what you're talking about. You know what I'm saying? Because it, it could, you know, it kind of sounds a little bit weird. Um, so anyone know, know the definition of a midwife here? Shout it out. We got a mom. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I, I thought you were stopping there initially at someone who delivers babies. Um, I was going to congratulate you. Yes, very brilliant. Um, a midwife is essentially someone who's trained to help the mom in the birthing process of the child. Okay? Uh, even so much as helping uh, in the actual birth, helping post the birth, helping, you know, like kind of help the mom like in the nursing process. I don't know why I do this with nursing. Just, you know, it, it's... So there's like lots of, there's lots of things that the midwife does. So, just so we understand what a midwife is. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, okay, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. Okay, let's just go ahead and stop. Um, now, there's, there's some translations that, you know, they, they like Pua. Either way, it's bad. I'm just saying. Pua or Pua. Um, just a quick note of encouragement, Okay. If, if you're here and you're always, you know, you're always looking for kid names by listening to the Bible stories, this is one you just may not want to pay attention to, you know. <laughs> hey, honey, I have the name of our next dog, you know. That would be fine. Okay. Actually, Pua means something really cool. Someone sent me a text in between services, and they're like, do you know the actual meaning of Pua? So they educated me. All right. So the king of Egypt comes. Huh? What is it? I didn't even read it. I just, they, they made it sound like it was significant. So... <laughs> That's what I just said. I just said, like, it's significant. I didn't read the text yet. I'll read it after. <laughs> Only have so much time. Come on. You want me to go get my phone right now? Yes. Not going to happen. Here we go. <laughs> Verse 16. Look at this. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. Okay. Um, the birth stool. Literal Hebrew, it means two stones, two rocks. Okay? The reason why you're struggling is because you ain't had no babies for the most of you guys. Okay? How many people in here have had, had you a child or two? Okay? Or three? Okay? Just a few of you. Okay? Mm-hmm. That was nice, wasn't it? The nice hospital bed. Everything was cordial. Picture two rocks as you're undergirding. Okay? Right? So that, that's the picture here. The birth stool is like laying on two rocks. That's how they did it back in the day, right? So when you serve, 
as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, here's what he says. If it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Okay. Now, again, you know, it's funny looking at the names and two rocks and picturing women giving birth on rocks. You know, it's horrible. But then he says, if it's a son, kill it. If it's a daughter, uh, let it live. This is real stuff. And so instantly, these Hebrew midwives, as is described in the text, um, they're forced with a very interesting opportunity. It's the same opportunity that you're forced with, maybe not in terms of murder, but you'll see the similarities here in a second. Verse 17, unbelievable text. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. For similarity purposes, it would be like looking at Hitler and saying, I'm not going to do that. Even some of Hitler's closest friends were killed for going against his power. So these midwives say, no, um, that's murder. And more specifically, we fear God more than you. Can I ask this? What kind of heart, what kind of person, what kind of character does one have to be to be able to look in the eyes of the ruler of the modern world, as it were, and say, I'm not going to do what you say? This pattern is seen all throughout Scripture, over and over and over, people looking. One of my favorite stories is the story of Daniel, who over and over looks at the king and says, nope, not going to do that not going to do that either. You don't want me to pray three times? I'm going to go ahead and pray. I'm not worried about it. And the clear distinction is you either fear man or you fear God. That's it. Your life is either dominated by a fear of man, worried about what man thinks, worried about how to please man, worried about how to gain approval of man, or a fear of God. Just so you understand, the word fear here, it isn't like a, oh, you know, It's a awe, it's a reverence, it's a because of who God is, it causes me to shake in in his grandeur, in his awesomeness, in his beauty. That's what the fear is here of God. So they feared him, they awed him, they respected him, they revered him to the point that they did not want to kill children. So, verse 18, the king of Egypt called the midwives... And said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives, in verse 19, said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous (laughs) and give birth before the midwife comes to them. This is awesome, right? (laughs) So Pharaoh comes. He's like, why are you guys letting letting this happen? And the midwives say, like, they have babies fast, (laughs) you know? Like... Someone calls, down the, someone calls down the road, hey, midwife, it's time to roll, you know. And we get there, and the baby has already been had, you know. So it's, it's quick birth. So there's only two possibilities for this. One, they're lying, or two, they're telling the truth. Which one is it, right? So one, they're looking right at Pharaoh and saying, yeah, this, you know, I don't, have you seen Hebrew women? I mean, they're just, they just give birth, you know, and they don't need a, you know, epidural, you know. I mean, those stones are comfy. They just, they rock it, you know. 
So they're either telling the truth or, or they're looking right at Pharaoh and they're saying, um, yeah, you know, here's the situation and in their hearts knowing that they're lying. Well, a couple interesting thoughts to both of those. If they are lying in this, in this moment, is it wrong? And I know many of you guys are like, sweet, I've been waiting on this moment all my life. Like, you know, so you haven't taken notes in years, but now you're like pen, paper, you know. Is Mark going to say it's okay to lie in the right circumstance, you know, and all define the right circumstance, you know. Um, well, we've taught many times in our past, we taught through First Peter, other texts, that, that talk about submission to the government. And the teaching is submit to the government as long as what? It doesn't cause you to disobey who? God, okay? So we submit right now to the United States of America and its governmental structure as long as that government does not uh, encourage me to disobey God. In other words, God's government before, before the government of this land, but the government of this land still, even in scriptural terms, I should submit to, okay? So there is a piece of that in this moment that becomes very clear then. He wants me to kill babies. I'm not going to kill babies. So God is, is certainly not for killing children, and so because of that, I don't have to submit, okay? Their lie, uh, we were having a discussion even just a few moments ago. It's interesting. The law hasn't even been given yet, the Ten Commandments. Like, though lying by principle certainly would, would seem already in error, but God has yet to say, like, thou shalt not lie. You know, so it's also an interesting component here, okay? So we, we don't really know. Are they lying? Are they telling the truth? We're not really sure. They could be fast birthers or they could be lying. But here's what happens next. Uh, verse uh, 20. Actually, let's start again in verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, and apparently the Egyptian women have some long births, um, for they are rigorous, vigorous, and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Look at this. So God dealt well with the midwives. Why? Because they fear him more than man. Because they stood their ground. Now, fearing man, you're either hesitant or compulsive. But a fear of God is completely different. You're either patient or resolved. When you fear God, you're waiting on God's direction, waiting on God's voice, waiting on God's sir, from God's word, waiting to hear from him. And so you're patient. And when he does speak, and when he does give direction, and when he does say go, then you're resolved to not let anything stand in the way of following that. So we see this principle now with the midwives. No, no, no. I will not be a part of murdering these children. I am resolved. I am resolute. Though he says to do it, I will not. That's a fear of God. I don't care who is telling me what to do. It doesn't matter. The Lord stands before all of that. That's a fear of God. And I think we can pause right now and say, you know what? We sell out for much cheaper prices than things of the, the lives of children. We compromise for things that are way less than the lives of children at hand. You guys see what I'm saying? So what in the world then does that say of our fear of the Lord? That we have no fear? That we fear ourselves more than we fear the God whom we say we love and serve? 
Think of this statement. That we fear XYZ person. Who like we've known for five minutes. More than the Lord who created us. Is anyone else bothered by that? When you just sit back for a second and you think about that? That I would have any interest in my sixth grade mind of gaining the approval of my new town and coming off pompous above simply serving the Lord and loving people in humility. Unbelievable. So God deals well with them. And look at this. He dealt so well with them and the people, uh, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Two maneuverings by Pharaoh. Okay? And so far, how's that gone for him? Oh, I'm going to try to uh, hurt your people, God. No, not going to happen. They continue to grow. They continue to make babies. Stones are not, midwives are not. They're rocking it. Okay? So over and over and over, God continues to show that he thwarts the plans of man and that his plans win. Verse 21. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Isn't this awesome? Listen, if you've been around kids all day or all the time and you don't have kids of your own, it's possible like they were so consumed with helping other people's kids, they, they couldn't have kids themselves. They didn't have time. But when you get around kids, like you just want to have them. Maybe. Like some of you guys, some, right? Some of you guys are like, no, not so much. You know, like, actually I babysit for the reason of, you know, just instant birth control or whatever. But for me, for me, like I, I, when I get around kids, I just want to have more. You know, I'm just like, I just, I love children. I love kids. I love being around them. They're happy. They're, they're just, they're awesome, okay? So God blesses now the midwives. He's like, you know what? You guys need to have some kids too. I mean, just everybody's having babies. That's the point, okay? Verse 22. Then, Mero, uh, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. His third maneuver. Okay, this didn't work. This didn't work. Well, I'm just going to take it in my own hands. Now every son, that, uh, every son that's born, throw him in the river. I mean, this is, this is mass murder now. This is trying to get rid of a generation of people, a, a nation of a people, a race of a people. And certainly setting up the rest of our story in Exodus. Listen. Here's what I've realized from this text is I think we are completely misguided in our fear of the Lord. So to help show this a little bit, I want to ask you three questions and make three statements. If you've been aloof in this whole time together, could you hang with me now? The first question is this. What maneuvers have you made birthed from a fear of man? I can fix it this way. The situation happens. I think, I think if I do this and I put myself in this situation, then I can. How many of you in dating relationships have made maneuvers fearing the one that you're trying to impress? Like to the point where it was completely sinful. You know, I'm not talking about like candlelight dinners, okay? I'm just talking about positioning and maneuvering and trying to completely control the situation. What starts to happen is in your maneuvers, you see how obsessed of control you actually are. 
That's why I make this statement, our first statement. The depth of your fear of man reveals the depth of your trust in God. Because every time you fear man, what you're saying is, yeah, God, I'm not so sure about that. I don't think you can actually take care of that. You may want to take care of that, but God, I'm not sure if you did take care of that, that it would go in the way that I I think it should. And so our fear of man, our need for approval of man, our need for high fives from man, our need for encouragement from man, our need just to be in relationship with man above the Lord shows our lack of trust in God. The depth of our lack of trust. And we say all kinds of things like, faith in God, I believe in God, oh God this, God that. But I'm telling you right now, when your life reveals itself to be consumed with fear, it shows the lack of depth of trust in the Lord in your heart, period. So the second question I have for you is this. Is God truly God or a convenient mantelpiece? Do you guys mind if I share on that a little bit? Is that cool? My grandfather, um, talk about him all the time had a phenomenal understanding of the fear of God. Carpet grooves wore out by his bed in prayer. He was a man that when he spoke the name of God, like the room shook. We're not, not sure how sometimes, but it just, it had power. This was a man that, that yes, sir, God. This is a man that loved God. This is a man that understood what it means to, 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 to stand in an, an awe of the grandeur of God. What I see in us in our culture, in American Christendom, maybe even in your life, is that God is some convenient mantelpiece. That he like sits in the middle of your dining room table with like, you know, three candles and some flowery fixture. That every once in a while you can point to. Every once in a while you can say, oh look, oh look, look it over here. Isn't it nice to see God, right? Or, or when you're s- sitting around at the dining room table, you, you like the Trinity, you know? Oh, isn't it nice to have God present here at our dining room table? It's like you can live like hell or do whatever you want, all you want. But when God is needed or when it's convenient, then all of a sudden you show him off. You pull down the drapery, you open it up. You're, oh, yes, there he's been there all along. What I'm saying is we have lessened God so much believing that we can strategize and, and program, uh, make programs in church and develop discipling relationships and do all of these things that then get to God instead of God showing us the strategy that he desires for us. I'm saying I believe in this culture and maybe even at times in this church, God is sitting on the mantle instead of on his throne. And listen, it doesn't matter whether you acknowledge it or not. It doesn't matter whether I acknowledge it or not. He is on his throne. That's why I want to make this statement. Listen to this. And I hope you hear this tonight. There is one God who sits on one throne who rules one kingdom. There is not multiple gods. Okay? There are not multiple thrones. There are not multiple heavens. Okay, this person over here who believes in a different religion, you're like, Mark, what are you saying about that religion? I'm saying that religion is not true. And you're like, Mark, that makes you intolerant. If that makes me intolerant, believing in something so firmly that I can honestly say that the Bible is true when it says man can only get to God through Jesus, if that makes me intolerant, then so be it. I believe that there is only one way to God through Christ. 
And I'm saying right now, I'm not so sure that the seriousness of God has impacted us. I think we take each other more serious than we do the Lord. That's why the weight of our conversations, the weight of our dialogue, the weight of our relationships, all the things we do with each other bears more significance than our relationship to the Lord. And it shows us then the depth of how much we really fear people and how much we take God, put him in a little canister, and open him when someone's sick. Hey, God, we need you now. Could you dump out a little of your God pixie dust? That's not fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is looking in the face of Pharaoh and saying, yep, we didn't kill no babies. Didn't happen. Whatever the consequence, then go ahead and bring it. We said in Acts, in Acts chapter 5, when the early apostles looked at the Sanhedrin, even though they said, hey, you guys shouldn't preach the gospel anymore. You know what they, you know what they did? You think they shut their mouths? They're like, you're right. You're right. We shouldn't preach the gospel. We're just going to go ahead and listen to you and your self-loathing motives, and we're going to shut our mouths. Heck No! They looked right in the face of the Sanhedrin, turned to their left, and started preaching the gospel. Why in the world would we let this culture dictate to us who our God is when our God is clearly defined? And we don't need to turn anywhere else to become in awe of that. My whole point is, is if you get enamored with God, then you don't have to think about fearing Him because it happens instantaneously. When you get captured by him, when you start awing him, when you see his grandeur, it instantly causes a fear of him. You don't have to wake up every day, God, please help me fear you today. You just have to think about God. It's not rocket science. I'm tired of God being a mantelpiece. I desire so desperately, and I know our leaders do too in this church, for this church to be driven by the character of God and not by programs or thought or strategies. The strategies of man will fail. God's plans will prevail, period. Period. So the last question I have in light of that is this. Is it possible to fear God more than man? Is it even possible? Because as we've been talking, like, this whole time, isn't there something in your heart that's like, Mark, I'm not so sure. It's even, it's even feasible. I'm, I'm surrounded by people. I'm surrounded by thoughts of people. I'm surrounded by desires for people. Mark, how does this even work? How does it even look? How can I really ever get to a point where I'm consumed by God more than man? The scripture says, choose you this day whom you will serve. You got to choose. You got to pick. Make your decision. You want to serve God or man? And what you'll find is when you try to serve both, it doesn't work. Never works. Does it? No. Because man, even some of your even some of your closest Christian friends can at times, at times, be some of the most distracting to the things that God wants. At times. The point is like all men fail. Choose you this day whom you will serve. So we end with this statement, third statement. A life dominated by a fear of God is true life. That's where life exists. These midwives were living. Listen, come on. Can you imagine when they left the conversation with Pharaoh? Can you imagine that? Like, I I picture, I picture them just like hugging it out. I picture them like, You know what? We stood our ground. 
And then you're thinking in your mind, well, what about the people who have died for standing their ground? That's why Paul says to live as Christ, to die as gain. Because they're not giving humans hugs now. They're face down in worship of God in heaven, period. They're not consumed or concerned any longer about hugging it out with another midwife. They're in the presence of the Lord. That's why when you submit to the Lord, when you fear him more than anything, that's where life truly begins. Let's stand together. I want to share something else with you. So, check this out. Awesome moment in the scripture. In 1 Samuel, Samuel's a king. He's getting ready to hand over his rule. And he's got a message for the people. And I need you to hear the message that he preaches, that he speaks, that he communicates to the people. 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you both and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, all he says is, it will be well. If you fear God, obey his commandments, it will be well, he says. And then he says this, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. It will be well, it will be against you. And then check this out, he displays it. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do. And then he says, is it not the wheat harvest? That's what he says. Isn't it the wheat harvest, everybody? And they all respond, yes it is. Look at this. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. He's calling out their selfish motives, their fear of man. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord, the Scripture says. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For at least a few moments of their life, they have a right view of God. Not that God will kill them in that moment, but that God does hold the universe in his hands. And so finally they say, Samuel, pray that we will not die. And I'm praying that this group of people, that this community, that this church will get a proper view of who the Lord is and the promise of the scripture is and it will be well. And it will be well. 